Welcome to the podcast for the Unitarian Universalist Society of Geneva. UUSG is an inclusive community, one that draws wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science. We seek to build a diverse, beloved community within our virtual walls and hope to inspire and accompany one another as we act for peace and justice in our larger world. The Reverend Scott Hall is a minister in the UU tradition. Coming from a career in information technology, Reverend Scott attended seminary to pursue lifelong interests in what he calls life's big questions. He joined UUSG as the settled minister in 2020. Good morning, UUSG. Shana Tova. Like many of you, I started out this weekend bright and cheerful. The sun was finally shining again, and the air had that delicious fall crispness. The smells of autumn were all around. I cut the grass. I emptied the garage. I even puttered. And when the news of Justice Ginsburg's death came in again, Like many of you, I found I was not prepared. I confess, I don't know what her passing is going to mean. I don't have any answers. I only have my hopes, my faith in you, and in the impossible wonder that I believe lies within each human heart. And yet, even as I grieve, I vow to remain vigilant. I believe our nation is in crisis, even as our human-made world is in crisis. Whatever comes, I know it will come from the work of our hands, our hearts, and our minds. Not from above, not from beyond, not from a great unknown. I have faith in you my friends and neighbors, faith that we are enough to meet the challenges that lie ahead, that together we can continue to bend the arc of history toward justice, equity, and peace. May it ever be so. Amen. As you can see, and in honor of the longest serving Jewish Supreme Court Justice, this morning I am coming to you live from the Chicago Loop Synagogue. I'm positioned myself virtually in front of their magnificent stained glass window. Like many places of worship, and like our own sanctuary, the Loop Synagogue is currently closed for safety. They hope to reopen soon when they, when we all are able to return in health and safety. The synagogue is on Clark Street downtown and you may know it as the one with the bronze sculpture of the outstretched hands, right? Held by and holding one of my favorite blessings. This one from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Inside the synagogue, you'll find a rather austere sanctuary, which is probably called minimalist. Right up until you see this giant wall, right? This giant window, floor to ceiling, another unexpected blessing, a riot of color and light. 
if I were the romantic type, a, a poetic type, I might say that a lot of religious traditions could be described this way. Simplicity mixed with unexpected and perhaps even awe-inspiring blessings. Today, I want to talk a bit about that. Rosh Hashanah began this past Friday, celebrating the head of the new year, year 5,781 of the Jewish calendar. This weekend, Jews all over the world are celebrating with feasts and sweets and new fruits and hearing the mournful and shivering sound of the shofar, that trumpet made from the horn of a ram, asking them to wake up, to look inward, to repent and to change. This is the anniversary of the creation story, the birthday of Adam and Eve. It is also Judgment Day. More on that later. At this point, I think it's a good time to take a moment and turn to your screens. Somewhere on whatever device you're using to see my face and hear my voice, there are other little squares, our people, our virtual community. I want you now to pick one of those windows. It doesn't matter which one. For now, that one is going to be your neighbor. And yes, I'm serious. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> now repeat after me. Neighbor, oh neighbor, sorry is just the beginning. Thank you. Amen. The text for today's sermon is here all along, finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there by author Sarah Hurwitz. This book has been on my shelf for a while now and I'm still exploring. Hurwitz is a brilliant storyteller and explainer of complicated things. If you have ever wondered about the sources of our living tradition, I encourage you to pick up a copy of this delightful book. It's noted also in your mini pioneer. So I wanna to start today's sermon with a story a story of my distant past, and by that I mean really the time of my being a young parent. I can't remember who said that the day our children are born is the day that our own childhood ends. I think that's apt. Not that I am no longer playful or mischievous or whimsical. You can ask literally anyone who knows me and they will tell you that I am all of those things to a fault. Now, what I mean is that that day I saw my kids' faces all squished up against the light and the noise of the delivery room. That day, life stopped being all about me. Being a parent meant becoming something new. What I was not so prepared for was being the lawgiver. Wouldn't it be awesome if kids were born intuitively understanding virtues and morals, and didn't need me or anyone really to set boundaries, to pick them up when they smash into those boundaries, dust them off and help them understand that that third rail, it really isn't that fun to play with. I remember teaching them to say, I'm sorry. To be honest, that memory is very foggy and probably apocryphal, but roll with it. Anyway, I remember much more clearly when they started using the phrase not as an apology, 
but as a reflex, a shield, a way of dodging the anger, the harm, the consequences of whatever it is that their action had provoked from the world. I said, I'm sorry. Note the heavy, sorry, not sorry inflection there, as if their responsibility for an abandoned sock, thoroughly misplaced shoe, broken toy, hurt feelings, or just the extra work they created. Really, that ought to be washed clean in the glorious gift of grace that apparently flows from the magical invocation of a not terribly authentic apology. I'm sure this is my fault. But this does bring me to the plate. I'm not really sure where I first heard this analogy, but the look on the faces of my kids when I explained it to them, that remains sharp. If you've never heard it before, I should preface it with this disclaimer. We're going to do a thought experiment, just a thought experiment. No plates will be harmed in this thought experiment. No actual plates. Okay, so it goes like this. Imagine you have a plate. It's a big plate, a good plate, a plate that you love, one that you've eaten delicious meals off of. It's a plate mom and dad bought, or maybe one that's been in the family, or maybe it's that nifty one you found at that yard sale that time. Okay, got your plate in mind? Now, take that plate and smash it on the floor. And now, tell that smashed plate that you're sorry. I told my kids that it is good to tell the plate that you're sorry. It is. It's actually important and crucial that you do so. But now what? Are you done? No. Because even though you said you were sorry, the plate is still broken. Even if the plate forgives, forgives you, the plate is still broken. There is more that you have to do. This, I explained to my darling little cherubs, is the difference between making an apology and making amends. This is also, I've come to believe, part of what lies behind the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Seeking forgiveness for your actions, yes, but also at least trying to make amends. Sin and atonement. It's not enough to be sorry or even to get a forgiveness. There's more that is required. I told many of you, I think, that my, most of my dad's family is Jewish by marriage. That is, all of my dad's siblings took their Quaker upbringing into marriages with Jewish spouses. With three Jewish aunts in my life, I find myself surrounded by caring women, all of whom it now occurs to me I owe phone calls to. <laughs> anyway, as a curious outsider, where I'm most familiar with the Jewish tradition is around death and how communities of faith can come together to support each other in that most extreme sort of life crisis. When my uncle died, my family dropped everything and flew out to Southern Massachusetts to be together. Strangers brought us food, told us to sit, encouraged us to tell stories, take time, be alone, whatever it was that we needed to do with food. There was a shocking amount of food. One of the benefits of having a life coach for a partner was a timely explanation of the mourner's Kaddish, a UU version of which we celebrated during our joys and sorrows this morning. The point, my wife told me, is that while death brings everyone together, after the crowds go home, grief remains. 
saying the Kaddish helps. Saying it once a week helps. It helps to have that grief seen. To not have to say, no, I'm not all better yet. Because grief doesn't really work that way, does it? It ebbs and surges erratically, irrationally. And my Jewish family knows that rituals can remind us all that grief is something carried, not buried. The point of ritualizing grief is to provide support, to acknowledge these unavoidable facets of life, to make a time and a specific space for it. I wonder if my rabbi friends would forgive me for wondering if by ritualizing atonement that Rosh Hashanah works along similar lines. Sarah Hurwitz writes, according to the Jewish tradition on Rosh Hashanah, God inscribes thoroughly evil people into the book of death, meaning they will die this year, and thoroughly good people in the book of life, meaning they will live. And the rest of us, which I assume is really everyone, since who is completely good or evil, the rest of us have to sweat it out until Yom Kippur, when a final judgment is made and our fate is sealed. According to Jewish tradition, these are the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, 10 days to sweat it out, 10 more days to do the work that we have left undone, work that maybe, perhaps, can change God's mind about us and our fate. If that feels as threateningly paternalistic to you as it does to me, know that Hurwitz agrees. She invokes Rabbi Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, who said that, quote, the worst thing you can do to a poetic metaphor is to take it literally, end quote. Point taken, Rabbi. Instead, I understand that Rosh Hashanah is a time of the year where tradition pokes a hole right through the wheel of the calendar and says, hey, you, pay attention. You have something important to do. And if you don't do it, there will likely be consequences. So a note about cosmic consequences. I'm not really into hell and damnation. To be fair, neither is Judaism. The point here isn't that God is going to smite me, that the wheel of karma is about to grind me into my next incarnation, that Mother Nature is, is poised now somehow to do me and mine some violent harm. Nevertheless, something important is at risk, perhaps through my own malice or negligence or callousness or clumsiness or capriciousness or ignorance, whatever the reason, I caused harm. And while I may never be able to make amends for all of the harms I have done, to not even take up that work is to remain encumbered with my options limited and my growth stunted. What God and this story seems to be saying with Rosh Hashanah perhaps is that I am currently and currently at risk of staying cut off. In the vastness of the cosmos, we, the tiny self-aware part, are able to contemplate the nature of our existence and more to choose to do something with it, something more than mere survival. My belief is that more, whatever shape it takes, can never truly be taken in a vacuum. 
Instead, growth is in the context of each other and the world we all live in. I'm reminded of the Unitarian Universalist Seventh Principle, which requires, quote, respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part, end quote. Grief is a part of life, and so is harm. And I'm reminded of the psalmist who taught us that we are all children of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderfully and fearfully. The fact is, we will cause harm. But what we do then is up to us. Rosh Hashanah reminds us to wake up and notice our fragile and tenuous position in the web of life. Reminds us that we can and maybe should choose to clean up at least some of our mess to repair at least some of our mistakes. Shortly after I explained the story of the smashed plate to my kids, I broke a bowl. My life is just filled with irony. This one was one of my wife's favorite bowls. And while she forgave me, I knew she was really sad about it. We tried to fix it. But as you may know, glued ceramic really isn't the same. And eventually that bowl fell apart again. Have you ever heard of Kintsugi, the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with precious metals. You should check it out, it's pretty cool. The point is that you take what was broken and acknowledge that an invisible repair may not be possible. Instead, what the artist does is makes the repair a defining feature, a thing of strength and beauty. Cracks, fissures, and even lost pieces, those become gold, they're replaced with gold. So instead of beauty despite being broken, and it becomes an explicit acknowledgement that it is our flaws that make us more interesting, more beautiful, and more human. Not everything can be fixed and perhaps not everything should be, but perhaps making amends is at least trying to make kintsugi. While the original perfection and wholeness may be lost, perhaps by reaching out, by making the effort, by being sincere and heartfelt, perhaps a repair can become the gold in the bowl of the renewed relationship. We eventually replaced my wife's bowl. Since it was special to her, not just any would do. And instead of glue, what I offered was time. We shopped, went to craft fairs, and finally found something lovely at a Renaissance fair to be the time, that was the care. It was the care itself that was the, became the web of gold that made this new bowl special. I believe that Rosh Hashanah invites us to look at that brokenness between each of us like this. It asks us about the kind of people we wanna be. Are we the kind of people that acknowledge that we are responsible for the vibrancy and health of the interdependent web that we draw life from? And even if we cannot fix the broken thing, is there an opportunity for something new, something beautiful that we can use to bridge and bind the gaps that we helped create? I'm reminded that our world has many such gaps. Over the next year, we'll talk about the ache for decency, equity, and compassion in Black Lives Matter. 
the lingering uneasiness around a woman's right to choose and anyone's right to love whomever they choose. The desperate cries underneath climate change and the despair on both sides of authoritarianism. So many cracks, so many places in need of repair. But the next 10 days are about us and our relationships. In Judaism, relationship is the bedrock of a life well lived. Being in right relationship with yourself, with your family, with your community, with your God, it's all of a piece, one web. And it's not just God calling out to you, it's the entire web of life and relationship asking you to do your part, to do your work, to come back home. These 10 days between opening the book of life when God close, and when God closes it, these are called the days of atonement, but they do have that other name too, the days of awe. There's some debate about why this is, but I like to think it, it's to do with the swing between awe-full and awe-some and the overwhelming power and obligations of love and life and community. The joy of life lived in community about how community only works when we are accountable to it, how community only works when we embrace the task of repairing it, how a community is only as strong as the cracks within it. What an awful and awesome responsibility each of us carries. Today is Rosh Hashanah, at least until sundown. And over the next 10 days, I ask you to find time, pause, reflect, and remember that saying sorry is just the beginning. Ask yourselves about your relationships over the last year. Seek forgiveness, grant forgiveness, make amends, let someone else make amends. By such acts, our hearts, minds, and hands take up the strands and weave the web that holds and supports all of us. By such acts, we hold and are held, we love and are loved. Shana Tava, my friends. May life be sweet on your tongue. May creation bless you and keep you. May love smile on you and fill you with kindness and compassion. May the web of life shine brightly for you, hold you in the splendor of its embrace and give you peace. Amen. Thank you for listening. You are always welcome to join the Unitarian Universalist Society of Geneva every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. Come as you are. We look forward to meeting you. Visit us at uusg.org for more information about us, our worship services, and where you can find us on social media. Hope to see you soon.